You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. And if you've been listening intently, you've noticed two things. We missed a week. We really did. We missed a week. I think second time in a year. My apologies. Second of all, you'll notice eventually that this is not the Q&A podcast that I told you was coming. Uh, Asked some questions on Instagram, got some great questions, and was ready to answer all those. But as I put them together, it just wasn't happening. I don't know how to describe it, but uh, the whole podcast just was kind of a train wreck. So put that idea on pause. We'll come back to it soon, I promise. What we do have is Teaching from Sunday Morning, part one of a two-part message on the idea of fasting. Now, you have maybe never thought about fasting, or you thought about it and thought, nope, give me two weeks. Will you do that? Will you just hear me out? Because I think there are a lot of things in here that will help make the idea more palatable, and I would even say attractive to those who are wanting to press in harder and hear something from the Lord that perhaps they've not heard in the past. Stick with me, week one of fasting. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah. I want to um, want to read a passage that I'm actually going to dive into next week so that we can ruminate over it a little bit and, and give ourselves some time to think about it. Um, Isaiah 58, I want to read this as both a promise and a challenge over the bridge. And when I say that, the reason I say that is when the Lord gives us something, it is often in the form of both a promise or a challenge. Something that is only a challenge is its drudgery. It's, um, it's striving. It's work, 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 no reward. Something that is only a promise is a bit of a fairy tale. But when the Lord gives us something, he gives us things in the form of both a promise and a challenge. It's, a, it's not so much an if-then, like an equation, as it is a, hey, let's. Let's do this together. And so there's, there's things to lean into and to do, but there's also things to receive. And we're going to be talking about fasting these next two weeks. Um, if you saw the video from yesterday, you were warned uh, and you had every opportunity to, to be busy this morning, as some might want to if they're going to hear about fasting. But uh, we're going to dive into this passage next week, but I wanted to read it over us really as a, as a challenge and as a promise. Isaiah 58, 6 through 12. Is this not the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Like people to tell you then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt 
You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. Let's just take a moment and pray before we dive in. Father, we say yes to the challenging promise here at Isaiah, and we say yes to the promising challenge that we lean into both aspects of these things that you're calling us to and you're offering to us to receive. And we pray that as we talk about and begin to exercise the discipline of fasting, that we would see the fullness of what you have for us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk this week and next week a little bit about fasting. And maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never thought much about it before, but there is a power and a beauty and a fulfillment and a breakthrough that comes only in living a lifestyle uh, that includes fasting. Uh, one of my favorite preachers of all time is a gentleman named Joseph Garland, Bishop Joseph Garland. And uh, he's a pastor in, in Pittsburgh. In fact, Nathan, may, maybe you've heard of him. He, um, he was married 50 years. He was one of the featured speakers during the heyday of all of the, um, the Promise Keepers events. And he's got a unique ability to take really confusing pieces of scripture or passages and break them down and make them very, very simple. I was listening to an interview of him this week where he described speaking to a large group of worship leaders. And these guys had been worship leading for decades, in some cases had been in ministry their entire lives. And they were asking him, Bishop Garland, how do you stay tender before the Lord after years and years and years of ministry? And for some of you, you may go, well, why is that a problem? Well, the problem is that sometimes, uh, you know, the euphemism is among pastors, sheep bite. And so there are times where, where ministry can be hard on you. And they said, how do you stay tender? Because he's a very tender man before the Lord. One of the things he told them was he had maintained a tender heart before the Lord with a regular regimen of fasting. And that he had learned that from his father, that his father fasted while he was growing up. Um, often a meal a day every day. He may take a few breaks here and there, but he had a, a daily regimen of fasting. Fasting is one of the most powerful tools in our arsenal of staying tender before the Lord. And as he shared this with these worship leaders, the response was kind of interesting. He said the response was, many of them asked, people still fast? It wasn't just that they were uncommitted. They were definitely uncommitted. They didn't want to sign up for that, but they were unconvinced that this even mattered in the life that we live. We understand the power of worship. We talk about the fact that we miss worshiping together. We understand the power of, of teaching, of hearing the word, of uh, the importance of baptism and of communion. We even at some level understand the power of generosity and of tithing, but we understand all of that before we really embrace the idea of fasting. Many of us would say, you know, I've never tried it. Others would say, tried it, didn't like it, would not recommend. It's not something that I want to make a part of my life. And so in our church culture, when I say our church culture, the Western church culture, we've largely made it something that we don't talk about, or we made it part of the, uh, the fringe of the Christian experience. Years ago, I read a book. I actually found it today. Uh, by, by a man named Watchman Nee. I don't know if you're familiar with Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a leader in the Chinese church in the early and mid-1900s. He was imprisoned in his 50s for leading churches that were outside of what was allowed in China. And he eventually was released and then re-imprisoned in, in his 70s, where he stayed in prison until he died. And uh, this book that he had... It, I even found the, the title a bit offending at the beginning, The Normal Christian Life. 
the normal Christian life. And he describes everything from church government to um, personal holiness and fasting from the perspective of the Chinese church in the mid 1900s. And what he calls normal, I found very uh, much beyond my experience. He talks about fasting and he talks about the idea that if you can't dislodge something in prayer, the next step is to start to fast because things happen when we fast that don't happen when we pray. Now, I found that offensive, even though it very much mirrors what Jesus said. These kind only come out with prayer and fasting. He was saying in times of persecution or of struggle, this is how you exist. This is how you get along. This is normal. Get ready for it. Fasting or willingly going without food or without other pleasures in order to dedicate time to prayer and express your hunger to the Lord is a normal part of the Christian life. It's often thought of an optional discipline, but it's a part of the normal. I don't want regular. I've said this before. I want normal. I want what we find in scripture, and I want to embrace that as how we live our lives, because the normal Christian life will include the normal amount of power from the Holy Spirit that is promised in the Bible. We have become accustomed and even satisfied with far less than what is described in the scripture as normal. There are things that I introduce to my children with the predicate, if you. Okay, I say if you and you've heard me say this before at times, if you would like some ice cream, if you get your homework done, it's an if then proposition. If you implies might happen, might not. I even might want it to happen, but I accept that maybe it won't. It largely depends on the one hearing the if you. There are other things that I predicate to my children by saying when you when you clean your room. This assumes the room will be cleaned. It may be a long, arduous affair, but I'm expecting that's going to happen. Things like when you take a bath, guess what? That's an announcement. A bath will be taken. It's going to happen. When you applies, something is going to take place. It's not optional. It's expected. And it's important that Jesus never, ever said, hey, if you fast, you know, hey, by the way, we used to do this thing. And if you do it, this is the way. You... No, no. He actually says in Matthew 16, when you fast. And he talks to him about fasting. And then in verse 18, he says that the reality of their fasting, which he expects them to do, will be connected to rewards from their father that they may not have expected. He said, you're going to fast and it's going to pay off in ways you do not expect. He says, you do the expected, I'll do the unexpected in your life. We have turned that around a little bit. and We have placed great expectation on the rewards of God while failing to meet some of the expectations that he laid out in the book of Matthew chapter 6. What kind of nerve does it take for a child to dictate to their father what he will do while neglecting to do what he said he expected us to do? Some of you are already thinking, I'm not against fasting. I just, I've never thought about it because it wasn't really a part of my fasting, or it wasn't a part of my uh, upbringing, it was a part of my faith tradition. I didn't grow up thinking about it. I never thought much about it. I still haven't. I never imagined it was a part of the normal Christian life. Don't let what you imagined the normal Christian life to override what Jesus described as the normal Christian life. I had a fantastic English teacher in high school, actually K, not K through 12, almost 
uh, uh, seventh grade through 12, went to a very small school. And Jane Ruprecht was my English teacher through all of those years. She was the first one who ever took me aside and said, you are a writer. I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't understand that till much later. I remember in the eighth grade, uh, she took me out in the hall during class, which is what she would do when she wanted to threaten my life. And uh, she told me, your ability with words will either make a life for you or it's going to get you killed. And I'm not sure which of those two things is going to happen in my class today. That was the kind of uh, teacher she was, but she was a great teacher. And she tried in vain to give us an appreciation for Shakespeare. And it really was in vain. Uh, we were farm kids. We grew up going to rodeos and racing motorcycles. And Shakespeare was just a bridge too far. Okay, we just were not going to go there. I do remember one quote, though, and this has stuck with me my entire life. I messaged her this week. I said, I'm actually quoting Shakespeare because I'm still living my life, hoping at some point she'll be satisfied. And uh, I, I told her I was using this quote. There's a quote where Hamlet is speaking to Horatio, his trusted confidant. And Horatio had just expressed doubt about something that Hamlet had described because it was outside of his realm of experience. And Hamlet turned to him and said, there are more things that are dreamt of in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. He was saying, just because you've never thought about it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something is new to you or you haven't given it much pondering doesn't mean it's not a part of the normal Christian life. And just because fasting is something that maybe you've never thought about before doesn't mean it hasn't been something that has been a staple all the way through church history. There's an old volume called the Didache. It's written in Greek, and it's kind of a minister's handbook, but it goes all the way back to the first century when most of it was written. And in the first century, what ministers were telling other ministers to do was to be serious about their faith, was to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And it even makes uh, mention that the Jews fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. They said, no, no, pick other days. So you kind of stand out a little bit. So it's always placed fasting and prayer in the same sentence. It said, be people of prayer, but it also meant be people of fasting. And from the first century, talked about fasting two days a week. If you bump a little further into time to the early church, Father Tertullian, who lived 160 AD to the early 200s, he makes a case for fasting that goes all the way back to the command to fast from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said to fast is to, to interact with God at an appropriate level. I can go all the way through church history, century after century, and find people who spoke passionately about the normalcy of fasting. Even closer to our day and age, many who led great revivals within our own nation were great men and women of fasting. John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, David Brainerd, Charles Finney, all fasted as a regular part of their normal Christian walk. Interestingly, the days suggested by the Didache in the first century, the, the Greek tome that was written to ministers, are the same days that John Wesley would fast on Mondays and Wednesdays every week. And he would demand that of his ministers that worked underneath him. So you read all this and you go, well, what happened to fasting? Like, wh why do we not think about this or talk much about it? And I, I gave that a lot of thought this week. Why? How did we get away from this idea of fasting? And I think part of it happened when the industrial age took place. We moved from handiwork or manual labor to industrial work and someone could suddenly get a lot more done. And a man or woman who maybe had worked six days of their, of their week for centuries in that role, suddenly had a weekend and had the idea of something that only the very rich had had, which was leisure time. 
And if we grew up in a post-industrial age, uh, even if we grew up with families who were not well off, there was still some concept of leisure time and a resistance that comes with doing things that are unnecessarily difficult because we want to protect our leisure time and protect time that was ours rather than belong to a job. And there's some good thoughts about that. But the delayed nature uh, and results of fasting meant that often people did not fast because they didn't fast long enough to see results. And the idea of fasting was no longer rewarding. It became just hard religion. And they began to cast it off like they cast off the idea of hard labor. Fasting is not an old-fashioned thing. It's a normal part of the Christian life. It's not a modern construct. It's the genuine article from the very beginning of history. And when it comes to the practice of our faith, we want the real deal. And so we've got to live the real life. Would the Lord allow us to not fast? Like, would, yeah, I think he would. I think he would allow us to have less than what he might have for us and live below his expectation and live with less than he has appointed for us. But that's not the life I want. So this week and next week, I want to give you two groups of reasons to fast. I, I know you. You're smart people. You've got to see a payoff, and you've got to see why we would do this. And I don't blame you, because who would do this without a reason? So this week, I want to give you uh, some long-term reasons. Next week, I want to give you some short-term reasons. And then we're going to move into actually a season of fasting as a church body. Now, uh, we're going to do this in the least legalistic way you could possibly imagine, all right? We have a, a very strong don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to fasting, meaning don't talk about what you're fasting, all right? It only breeds division and, uh, and, and frustrates people. It really does. But we, we are going to invite you into this for a couple of different reasons, and we'll talk more reasons next week as well. But this week, I just want to give you four long-term reasons of why we would make fasting part of our normal life. Reasons to set our life according to a regimen of fasting. And I am personally being challenged in this. So if you are uncomfortable, come sit by me. Okay, we're all in this together. All right. First of all, we fast to set our hearts to seek the Lord, to set our hearts to seek the Lord. We are amazed by the physical heart. Physical heart, most people know about the size of your fist. Okay, it will beat 115,000 times today without you ever thinking about it. <laughs> Some of you are going, uh-oh, now I'm thinking about it. Now, now I'm, did it? Yep, it did it. No, no, 115,000 times a day involuntarily. It just happens. It pumps 2,000 gallons of blood every day, circulating the entire volume of your blood about 1,300 times. If you were to stretch out the blood vessel system in the normal human body, it would extend over 60,000 miles. There's a lot of stuff going on you haven't thought of until just now. I mean, some of you are getting nervous trying to make sure it all happens. The physical heart is simple in comparison to the euphemistic heart that engages with the eternal God. Like we know some about the physical heart, but the the internal heart that engages with the Lord is far more complex than that. Charles Spurgeon says, the heart is the rudder of the soul. And until the Lord take it in hand, we steer it in a false and foul way. Say, what are the chances if we're steering our own heart that we're going to get into trouble? Almost 100%. James, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart 
is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's the prophet Jeremiah going, the human heart, who can know? You know, it's like it's bent to do the darkest thing possible. Our life, our soul ends up going the direction that we set our heart and our hearts are can be set by panic or fear, but they can also be set by discipline. In the Old Testament, we find Daniel intentionally setting time aside to seek God and fasting and prayer were a regular part of his regimen. It's mentioned over and over through the book of Daniel. It was normal to Daniel, but is what made him stand out among all of his other captors. It's what got him noticed by man and by God. We're going to talk a lot about Daniel today, but go to chapter 9, just looking at verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerah, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with my fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel said, I've got an idea of what's coming down the pike here. I, I can read enough of the words of Jeremiah to know things are going to start happening. And so I want to set my heart to hear more from God in this season. What looks like Daniel just putting his one foot in front of the other in prayer and fasting and prayer and fasting, he is really setting his heart to be weighed by God in a way that, that can be measured. It's like, I want to be here every day. I want to do this on a regular basis. He made it a lifestyle, which meant in times of trial, when things got difficult, he was already living the life that was necessary to prevail. Right now, living as we are, on the edge of a pandemic, things you know beginning to loosen up, things are getting, are getting better. But if you look at scripture, we know over time, they're not going to get better. They're going to get harder. They're going to get worse. We're in a window of time where we can begin to set our heart by a habit of prayer and fasting that will sustain us when things get more difficult. Now, in Daniel's case here, how long did it take to make a difference? Not that long. Because within the same chapter, he's got one of the most profound visions and a visit from an angel that reveals things we have yet to see or understand. How did that happen so quickly? What was the trigger event? Daniel 10.2 describes it this way. He said to me, fear not, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. He goes, you know what? When you started to fast and pray, instantly I started to respond. You set your heart towards me, in fasting, and I instantly decided to respond. Daniel used prayer and fasting to set his heart, that thing that Spurgeon called the rudder of the soul, and he set his heart on knowing God. Now, there is an anger in our culture towards what I call binary answers, towards clarity, towards either or answers to questions. The most offensive thing you can be in the public square right now is certain about anything. It's considered... Um, it's, it's just not considered good form. Our culture is railing against clarity between truth and lies, between good and evil, even clarity between genders. If someone struggles with their sexual identity, they're told they're non-binary. And as believers, to be fair, we kind of like non-binary answers when we talk about our walk with the Lord. We speak in generalities. 
well, how are you doing? Well, I'm kind of in an unusual season, or I think maybe what the Lord is saying, or I'm trying to hear, I'm sensing Daniel could answer, I am fasting and I'm praying, and this is how, and this is why, because when I've set my heart towards the Lord, I get answers from him. Fasting was a part of setting his heart to receive those answers. If you are regularly fasting, there's no mistake why you're doing it. There really isn't. I mean, why else would you do this? You're setting your heart to hear from the Lord. And if, if you're not doing it, you're not doing it because it's easy not to do it. But if you're doing it, that binary if or, or not, the Lord responds to that. You're doing it because you want to set your heart towards God when, when your heart is being wooed a thousand different ways. And he sees that in a very binary way. He says, oh, they, they chose me above all things. They set aside this time to go without food. They chose me. They're not talking about, well, I think I'm in a season of something. No, no, no. They have set aside a day and said, I am not going to eat today because I'm hungrier for what God might do than the things that are in front of me. I listened to an interview this week of a champion prize fighter. And uh, the interview wasn't so much about his fighting. It was more about his training. And the interviewer asked him, how did you go about making sacrifice after sacrifice of eating right or exercising or developing the mental toughness to become what you wanted to be? And his answer struck me. He said, I never thought of terms of sacrifice. I always thought in terms of decisions. I want this more than I want that. So I'm going to do this. When we fast, we make a decision to set our hearts towards the Lord. That's one of the long-term reasons we fast. Another long-term reason that we fast is to confess our sins, to confess our sins. We confuse conversion with confession, okay? It is, it is possible to be converted to Jesus and live your life for him the rest of your days. Recently, Vidi Metzger went to be with the Lord after serving Jesus for 80 years. What an amazing testimony. You can do that. You can be converted and serve the Lord your entire life. But conversion can happen when you're young and it can stick, but there is still a place for confession in our lives. And if we do not confess the things that bottle up and that the sins that we try and hide, they become ingrained as a normal part of our life. Daniel, with a regular regimen of fasting, included confession as a part of his fasting routine. Daniel 9.20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God and the holy hill of my God. He said, I confessed, and I confessed to my own sin, and I confessed to the sin of my people. Why does fasting dovetail with confession? Because in our strength, we can resist conviction with remarkable tenacity, okay? Like, you, you give me a couple of good steak dinners and I can resist confession. I, uh, you know, I feel good physically. I, I, I can put things out of my mind. The weakness that comes with fasting leads to tenderness that allows us to perceive our own wrongdoing in a way that we may never recognize with a belly full of chicken wings. There's something about fasting that tenderizes us and points out to us those areas of our life where our attitudes are wrong or where we're in sin. Weakness, incidental or chosen, gives us a reason and an ability to re-examine ourselves. We, uh, one of our older sons, who shall remain nameless, was inf infamous for growing very tender 
when he was sick. Now, this boy might be rough as a cob, 99 days out of 100, but when he was sick, it was almost funny. He'd lay there as a teenager on the couch. He'd get the flu, and he'd lay there on the couch, and if you brought him a glass of water, it was like, thank you. He was just so grateful and so tender. It was like you'd given him a million bucks. Kelsey and I joked that we always said we, maybe he was afraid he wasn't going to make it. He just wanted to get right with everybody before he passed on from the flu. The truth is in our moments of weakness, we are often more repentant. And in our repentance, God moves on our hearts. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. A clean heart is a heart that works and a heart that works engages with God and repents and it's refreshing. Have you, have you ever seen somebody who had multiple blockages and had heart surgery and two days later looks better than they did before heart surgery? You're like, you just had your heart taken out of your body and turned around and cleaned up and you physically look better now than you did two days earlier. Because a heart that works is a heart that's clean and a heart that's clean works before the Lord. You may only be three days into a fast away from heart surgery and the Lord revealing things to you that are unclean in your heart that you've got to remove. And in removing that, everything changes. We fast to set our hearts towards God, but we also fast because it tenderizes us towards repentance. And suddenly things come up from the bottom that we have stuffed attitudes that we haven't thought all of a sudden they're, that's ungodly. Well, but I've thought that way for years. Yeah, we've thought in ungodly patterns for years. Let's get rid of that. doesn't happen when we're not fasting. Fasting makes us tender for that. So we fast to set our heart towards God. We fast to tenderize ourselves towards repentance. We fast for fulfillment of God's promises. Now, we live in a world where good and evil stake out really opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. And evil is real, not just misfortune, but actual evil. At the other end of the spectrum stands God who doesn't just represent good, but is good. And the question that everybody has and wrestles with is, does God, who is ultimate good, have a plan for my life? And if they have a plan for my life, how do I access it? Because God having a plan is based on so many variables, including our own human will, that it means his plan could go unfulfilled in our life because his plan is never a dictate. It is always an invitation. So if God has a plan for our life and it includes an invitation, how do we step into that invitation? God has a prophetic plan for or an invitation for every person, every family, cities, nations. And his prophetic promise is the best version of our life. Might not be the easiest version, but it is the most fulfilling and highest calling that we could ever find. We've got to actively seek the Lord for that plan, because lesser plans will always come and offer themselves to us. Fasting food, which sets aside our plans, gives more room and makes us more sensitive to his plan. In the beginning of Daniel 9, and again in the beginning of, of Daniel 10, Daniel sees the landscape of the world changing, and he immediately goes to fasting. That's his instant response, because he wants to go after the plan that God has for he and his compatriots. Daniel understood that if he were to fast, he would get clarity about what God is doing. Fasting gave him clarity to hear the Lord for himself.
Now, my, my parents' farm was not huge, but it was spread out. It's about 1,200 acres, but it was spread out in different parcels, 60 acres here, 120 acres here. And from the east to the west, there was probably four or five miles of, of ground to cover. Again, it wasn't one big plot of ground, but it was just spread out different ways. And before the days of cell phones, we had CB radios. My dad had CBs installed in everything, every truck, every tractor. We, they all had, had CBs. And on the tractors, we had uh, huge speakers. So you could actually hear the thing over, over the top of the, uh, the running diesel. And then we had a base station that we put in the house. Our house was based on a hillside in North Dakota, the only hill for miles, but don't get your hopes up. It was just kind of a mound. It, there just are no hills. But on top of that hill was the house. And so we put a massive CB antenna on top of that house, stuck way up in the sky. But initially it didn't work. We couldn't hear anything. We had everything going for us. We had the house on the hill and the antenna on the house, but it just didn't work. We had to have somebody come out and help adjust the antenna and trim it or turn it to just the right angle so that it seemed that it worked. Suddenly, when we got the antenna trimmed, we could hear my father yelling for coffee. We could hear him yelling for diesel fuel. We could hear him yelling for sandwiches. We could hear him yelling things when he ran over a screwdriver that I'd left in the field and punctured a tire. We could hear the will of the father with amazing clarity once that antenna got trimmed. Fasting has the effect of trimming the antenna of our heart so the will of the Father becomes clearer and clearer to us. It's still up to us to answer the call. You know, you could turn the CB off. There, you, there would be the wrath to pay later, but you could turn it down. You could ignore the call. But fasting allows us to hear the call that we might not have heard before, and we hear it loud and clear. When we fast, we gain insight into plans we might not have known, and we entertain options we might not have entertained before, and we gain boldness to exercise those options that we might not have had before when we were fat and happy and desensitized to the voice of God. Scripture is full of examples of people who, in their pursuit of God through fasting, received a piece of the puzzle or a promise that fueled them to press on with God. And this, even in a crazy way, works with people with less than complete understandings of who Jesus is. In Acts 10, we read the story of Cornelius, and we know that Cornelius is a God-fearer. He was a Gentile, but he had adopted the faith and the ways of the Jews as much as he was allowed. He believed that the, the God of the Jews was the true God, and he is praying, and many versions add the word because the words meld together, praying and fasting. And while he is praying and fasting that God would speak to him, Peter has a vision of the unclean animals that come down in the sheet, and Peter receives his call to minister to people like Cornelius. The Bible says he, Peter comes and preaches to him, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and he ties the whole thing directly to Cornelius's realm and regimen of prayer and fasting. Cornelius fasted, his antenna got trimmed, God sent help that would bring him into the fullness of knowing Jesus and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. What if we are only a three-day fast away from getting a fuller understanding of what God's plan is for us? Would you, I mean, would you do that? What if, if just surrendering for a couple of days to our baser instincts of food in a healthy way, in an in a intentional way, would be enough for him to 
unfold a plan for your life that you've never been able to unfold because you have never trimmed the antenna of your heart to hear his voice. When we fast, we, trim, we set our hearts towards God. We tenderize ourselves towards repentance. We get a better understanding of his promises for our life. And we get a grace to understand what he's saying to us. You ever given up an idea just because it seemed too hard? Like, I really need to do this. And then you took one look at it. You went, no, I, I, I'm going to need help for this. When we moved out of the house that we were previously living in, we had a, a ceiling fan that I needed to uh, replace in my boy's room um, because boys destroy ceiling fans. It's just, a, it's a fact of life. It just happens. You know, you walk in and the whole thing's hanging from the, from the ceiling by the wires. You don't even ask questions. The answer to the question is boys. So I had to replace this ceiling fan before we moved out and uh, couldn't find anybody who really was able to do it. And as we've talked about earlier with my drywall skills, I'm just not the handiest guy in the world, but I was the only person available. And so I had to do this. So I shut the power off and I took the old fan down, which wasn't that hard anymore because only wires were holding it up and assembled the new fan and got ready to put the thing together. And I realized that I had three wires on the fan and four wires hanging from the ceiling. Now, I don't know much about a lot of things, but I do know that just tucking a random wire into the ceiling and leaving it there was not a good idea. I knew that was bad. So after uh, staring and Googling and staring for a little while, I did what everybody else would do. I phoned a friend, my friend JD, the electrician. I'm like, JD, how are you? <laughs> I haven't called JD in a long time, but granted, I haven't tried to do any electrical work in a long time. And so he explains to me what I needed to do to fix this. I had to ask for insight because I knew I could not ignore the problem that I was facing. In our spiritual life, when we hit something that we are not sure of, we are tempted to walk away. We're tempted to just ignore it. We're tempted to just kind of move on or pretend or tuck the wire up in the ceiling and, and just move on. There are areas of scripture and areas of need in our lives that we tend to surrender to the unknown rather than fight for them. How do we fight for them? We fight for them in fasting and prayer. One of the things that Watchman Nee talked about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder the quote, but the gist of it was this morning was when you cannot dislodge something in prayer, you have to go to fasting. And that dovetails so well with Jesus said, some, some things only happen with fasting. There are reasons and understanding that are only released to us. Understanding about things in the Bible, understanding about things in our own lives that are only released to us when we fast. Daniel, who lived a life of fasting, directly tied his fasting to the insight that he got about problems that he may have never figured out had he not been a person of fasting. In Daniel 5, we read that one of the things that made Daniel and his associates stand out among all of the other young men of the land was their ability to understand things and have insight, and that was tied to their prayer and fasting. In Daniel 8, he's fasting and he has a Christophany, or an appearance of Jesus that comes to him, and Jesus commands an angel over him. In Daniel 8, 16, he says, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. That's, this is the Christophany. This is Jesus speaking to the angel, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. It's even clearer in Daniel 10, 11 to 14. And he said to me, Daniel, O great man loved, 
understand the words I speak to you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. He speaks to him. He says, you're going to understand this more because you have been praying and fasting. Say, well, good for Daniel. How does this apply to us? It applies to us because it's time. It's time to lean into this for understanding. Jeremiah 23, 20 says, The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed the accomplishments and intents of his heart. And in latter days, you will understand this. He says, and Daniel echoes this, that there are times and seasons nearer to the return of Jesus when things will be revealed to believers that have been bottled up. Things that were spoken to Daniel and told, seal up. How will they access those things? They will access those things by prayer and fasting. He repeats this in chapter 30 in Jeremiah. There are things about the days that even we are living in that are a mystery to us. This is the most confusing season of most of our lives. Between the daily pressures that we're under, the, uh, the turmoil on the national level, the turmoil, turmoil on the social level, most confusing thing going on in our lives. How do we seek clarity and understanding in that? Fasting can unlock understanding to those issues and the thorny issues of our life and our relationships that we all struggle with. What if there is so much more to know than we know, but we're trading all of that knowledge away for a cheeseburger or a bowl of ice cream? What if that would be the surrender that it would take to unlock understanding that we do not have right now? We had a, a visitor this week. Uh, it was so fun. Lou Engel stopped by the house. He was in town for 24 hours and called and said, hey, can I come by the house? And so he came by and spent about an hour and a half of this morning, I, or a couple of mornings ago. I love Lou. One of the reasons I love Lou is there is zero pretense about him. What you see is what you get. We've known him for years. People always ask us, is he really like that? He is really like that. He is that intense when he's praying. He's that intense when he is playing. He is inspiring and fun. And there's zero pretense. And he likes to tell this story of fasting years ago when he was on staff at a church in Pasadena, California. They were meeting at Mott Auditorium. It was a, about a 3,000 seat, really kind of a barn. It was kind of a mess of a building. But they would meet there for prayer and fasting on a regular basis. And they were right on the edge of a massive move of the Holy Spirit where they met five and six nights a week for about a year and a half. It was on the campus of a little Bible college, and the Holy Spirit just poured out in a phenomenal way. They were constantly battling the city because people would drive in from all over Los Angeles, and there was no place to park, and they would park in people's yards. And, and it, just, it was a, a, a messy, messy move of the Holy Spirit. And they were right on the edge of that happening, and they were in a fast. And Lou tells the story of being up in the middle of the night, and he's hungry, okay? He's very hungry. So he goes down and he stands in his kitchen. You'll learn that when you're fasting and you get hungry, you go stand in the kitchen for no reason, as if the proximity to the food will somehow relieve things. And he's standing there. And you'll also learn when you're fasting that you are able to do some really remarkable mental gymnastics to excuse what you're about to eat. Like, you know, for some reason, you can, you can justify something that you wouldn't justify eating something else. And in, in his passion for the Lord, you know, he doesn't feel good about making a sandwich. But for some reason, potato chips seem okay. <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe they're thin. They're just, you know, there's not, not really, it's more for the taste. There's really nothing to a potato. It's not even like eating, really. So he decides he can have potato chips 
but they're they're dry and, and his mouth is dry. And so he has a little bit of yogurt with him. Like who, if you're going to break the rules, you break it with chips and yogurt. So he eats some potato chips, eats a few, yo- a little bit of yogurt, and he goes upstairs, goes to bed. Next morning, goes to the 6 a.m. prayer meeting. And he's passionately praying. If you've ever seen Lou, he's, I mean, he's, he's going for it. He's praying hard. And this little gal comes and stands next to him and says, whispers in his ear as he's praying, I had a dream about you last night. And he stops and he looks at her. He says, what did you dream? She goes, it was really weird. You were eating potato chips and yogurt. (laughs) The lady dreams exactly what he had. Now it wasn't, it wasn't a smackdown from the Lord. Okay. It was, it was almost comical, but it was like the Lord saying, don't trade what I'm about to do for potato chips and yogurt. Okay. Like, like there are, there are higher things to aspire to. And the higher things are not what's found in the pantry. The higher things are found in the heart of God. What if we were only this close and all we had to do was say no to a lesser pleasure to receive the greater pleasure of of what God wants to do. Some of us are walking through the thorniest issues of our lives right now with family and with work, with a pandemic, with illness, with other pressures. And we need a level of understanding and breakthrough and insight that we just have not had. That breakthrough could be around the corner. I don't want to trade it for chips and yogurt. I fully believe that what the Lord has for us in the coming year is phenomenal. I'm believing for space to meet. I'm believing for your family members to come to know Jesus. I'm believing for a a visitation of the Holy Spirit. Like I, I, I can almost taste it, but I can still taste chips and yogurt. And I believe the Lord is going to call us into a season of fasting for the fullness of what he has for us and for insight into things that we have not seen before. Now, rest easy. We're going to talk about this next week. Okay. And, uh, but what I want you to do in this week is to really pray about this. And when I say fasting, we'll, we'll talk about the practicals a little bit next week too. Some of you will do a season on just water. Some of you will fast a meal a day. Some of you will fast and only eat, you know, we'll need no meats, no sweets, something like that. A modified fast. You, you will, you will weigh between the Lord what is right for you and, and taking in your physical condition. We're, I, I don't want to press anyone into doing something they're not physically able to do. That is, that's not fasting. That's dangerous. Okay. We're not doing that. Remind yourself, Daniel and his friends were 15. And so they, maybe their bodies were acted a little differently than some of ours do. But I do want to wrestle with this idea of Lord, there is more for us than we are seeing. And we seem to have received all we can by asking. So now if we fast, what will you do in our hearts? What will you do in our midst? There is a reward to this, okay? There is a tenderness before the Lord that we have not encountered maybe in a long time. And when we reach it, we will go, I'm glad I didn't trade this away for the chips and the yogurt. There's so much more.